I'm so glad that I did this surgery because all of the people around me were very, very, very sick people. These were all people who were fighting cancer. And one of the things that stood out to me the most was anytime one of their loved ones would leave their room, they lingered at the door a little bit, almost to the point of like the loved one being like, is this the last time that I'm going to see them? And that just like really hit home. I made the right choice. I don't want my kids to ever, ever, ever have to stand at the doorway thinking, is this the last time we're gonna see our mother? Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. The Jewish weekly day of rest, Shabbos, is so precious and sacred. However, many women find it challenging to refrain from applying makeup on this festive day, and some are even hesitant to leave the house. Enter Seventh Day Shine, a revolutionary skincare and makeup line that can be applied on Shabbos while keeping halacha. Their foundation, blush, bronzer, eyeshadow, and eyeliner and lip powders come in a huge array of colors, and their application brushes are so luxurious. My favorite product is Luminosity, an intensely hydrating and refreshingly scented serum that's especially formulated for permissible application on Chavis. Check out their full line on SeventhDayShine.com. That's the number 7, T-H-D. D-A-Y-S-H-I-N-E dot com and enter birthway 10 for 10% off your purchase. Find the link in the episode show notes. It takes time and practice to master the skill of the newborn swaddle. So here's my hack. Go to elliesandco.com. Among their full line of gorgeous, high quality baby bedding and lay assets, you will find adjustable swaddle blankets that take at all the guesswork. With a pocket for baby's legs and adjustable wings with secure closures, your baby swaddle will be perfect every time. Go to elliesandco.com. That's E-L-Y-S-A-N-D-C-O.com and enter BW10 for 10% off your purchase. Link in the episode show notes. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. Today, I am so excited to be interviewing Esther Widroff on her amazing, incredible fertility and birth journeys with her three children. Welcome to the show, Esther. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you have three children, Kanai Nahara. Um, What are their ages? My oldest is turning eight this month. Uh, My middle child is five and my youngest is seven weeks old. Beautiful, and I'm so privileged to have been a part of your journey with a major your, part with your youngest. Yes, <laughs> yes. thank God. Yes, um, it, it's truly I've built so much more respect for you than I ever did, given all the fun. other <laughs> all the other stuff you've been through. So let's start from the beginning. Just start from you know after you got married, what happened? Sure. Um, so Baruch Hashem, I got married when I was 20. And I had been taking birth control before the chuppah to avoid chuppah's needle, all of that fun stuff. And when I came off of it, I did not get a cycle, which was very odd for me. I never had that happen before. Um, I think I took birth control for all of like three months total. Um, So I was really excited to start a family. I just graduated from college. My husband was starting his PhD. 
Um, but months went by and I didn't get a cycle and didn't get a cycle, didn't get a cycle. So started to realize that something must be wrong. I'd never experienced this in my life before. Um, I started tracking my cycle or non-existent cycle by taking basal body temperature. Um, and after about six months, went to the doctor and said, here, look at these charts. I'm not ovulating. I really would like help. Typically they say they wait a year before intervening, especially with someone my age. Um, but because I had had like the hard proof that I wasn't ovulating and something wasn't right, my doctor was happy to recommend me to a reproductive endocrinologist. And that's where my fertility treatment journey started. You're so health conscious. So you knew to do something called fertility awareness, um, which is just, I'm not going to go into depth about it, but it's just, you know, a series of taking temperatures and connecting them to different parts of your cycle. So it's amazing that at the age of 20, you knew how to do that already. You're so health conscious, which is why I have you here, because it really aligns with the purpose of this podcast, especially for Jewish women who whose reproductive journeys can be 20 years long Mm -hmm. so it's that much more important for us to preserve our health so that's really incredible and um, like you said you saw an endocrinologist that helped investigate what was going on I also just want to mention that you said you were on birth control before you got married I want to make it clear that taking birth control it's very important to know that it does not make you infertile no not at all I had an underlying condition that had not been diagnosed that was very active um, in high school and seminary and college and the more active you are with PCOS and the leaner diet you eat, the less the symptoms are there. So I always had PCOS. It just had not been diagnosed. Something with the birth control and the lifestyle change of getting married um, sort of helped it. The hormones get unsettled and rear its its head. But yeah, 100%, it is not the birth control's fault that I had infertility. Yeah. It was a condition that I always had and just didn't know about. Yeah, exactly. So just because some people are afraid, they think that if they take birth control, then it's going to cause them to have infertility later. But once people start to try to get pregnant, it's kind of like you said, some dormant condition that was preventing them that they just didn't know about. Yeah, for me, it was just it was so obvious because, again, when you come off of birth control, you expect a cycle. And because there was no cycle, um, that was sort of where the starting point for me realizing something was wrong was. Um, The reality is if I didn't go on birth control, I still could have had a really difficult time getting pregnant um, because, again, this condition was there the entire time. Right. And and birth control regulates the cycle. So some people may have a regular cycle when they're on hormonal Mm -hmm. birth control um, and then come off of it and suddenly not have that cycle. Okay, so um, what was your diagnosis? So I was diagnosed with PCOS. Um, Thank God in my case, I responded really, really well to hormone therapy and fertility treatments. Um, I'm one of the luckier ones. There are people who have a harder time, so I don't want to make it seem like PCOS is a walk in the park, but um, compared to some For other, you personally. Yeah, for me personally, it was really nice to have a diagnosis and to know that it was treatable. Yeah, and, and right, so there's a spectrum of symptoms that someone can have and a spectrum of severity of the condition, right? Yes, yes, so thank okay. God I responded right away. Um, my very first pregnancy was through fertility treatment. It unfortunately ended in loss, which was really devastating to me because at that point we had been trying for a year um, and I was only 21. So still really, really young in hindsight, Um, but it gave me hope that pregnancy was possible and was achievable. Um, 
when you're doing fertility treatments or even when you're not doing fertility treatments after a miscarriage, the most important thing is that they wait for your um, HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone to go back down to zero, which means there's no indication of pregnancy in the body. So really I was excited for it to drop back down to zero after, you know, you worship the rise of the HCG and then you worship the fall of it when you want to start again. Um, so Baruch Hashem, it dropped pretty quickly. We started fertility treatments again the following cycle, um, and I got pregnant with my oldest daughter, Sarol. Yay! Yeah, it was really, it was really incredible. There's no other way to explain it. Um, when you're going through the thick of infertility and before your first pregnancy, or even before you first hold your first child, there's always that "what if this never happens?" and it's impossible not to go down that road. Um, and I think especially for me, I was the first one of all of my friends to get married and um, Baruch Hashem, they're all married now, but it took like several years. So I really had no one to turn to. None of my friends were talking about it and the other friends that I did have um, that were married, like maybe not my closest friends, but friendly with, they had already had children. So I really felt alone, um, very, very alone. And it was very, very painful. Um, but when we got pregnant with Sarol, um, Baruch Hashem, it sort of felt like there was this light again and you never really stop worrying. Pregnancy after loss is really a strange animal um, because you're so thankful for the ability to be pregnant again, but you're so terrified of what you've been through. So I just remember every single day, multiple times a day, just saying like, thank you Hashem for this incredible gift. Please let me hold on to it. Um, and the funny thing is, is that that fear never really goes away because I felt that same exact way with all three of my pregnancies and especially my my youngest now was I would say even the scariest of all of the pregnancies um, as far as emotions go but Baruch Hashem when you finally get to hold that baby it's like I wouldn't say that the pain fully goes away because it follows you but in that moment everything that you've davened for is here it's like it's like really, I felt. I feel like the closest I've ever felt to Hashem is like the moments after my children being born. So you got pregnant with Sarah, and did you carry her to term? So I carried her to 38 weeks even. Um, my water broke spontaneously. Got to the hospital. I was only two centimeters dilated. Um, started Cervidil because I was not Cervidil. Yep. Cervidil. Sorry, mm-hmm. I was not a face at all. Um, Fast forward 24 hours of labor, I started having irregular cardiac activity on my end, which um, prompted some D cells on her end. So an emergency C-section was called. I was petrified. Um, apparently, I even said to my husband, the doctor that I use, they're incredible, really amazing, amazing people. Um, I really think they're the reason, other than Hashem, like they are Hashem's hands here on earth, the reason why I have children. Um, my doctor had an extremely low C-section rate. So as I'm being wheeled to the OR, I said to my husband, I don't want him to operate on me. He doesn't do this enough. And he sort of just laughed and was like, usually people complain when I do this too much. Now you're complaining when I don't do it enough. But Baruch Hashem, she was born. Um, she happened to go straight to the NICU because I was strappy positive and running a fever. So just to make sure she was okay, she spent the first night there, but I got to see her for the first time, probably 12 hours after she was born, which in and of itself was also devastating. I felt like so robbed of the experience, 
but most importantly she was healthy and I was healthy um and, and you were worried already just the pregnancy wasn't yeah. an easy pregnancy you no. were holding your breath the entire time yeah. so it was just like one additional thing to be separated from her definitely especially also after 24 hours of like hard labor um I'll never forget the sound of like the OR doors swinging shut behind the NICU team taking her and saying to my husband, like, go with her. And he wanted to stay with me to comfort me. And I was just like, go with her. So in the end, he sent his mother um, to the NICU so he could stay with me. And my mother-in-law is an incredible human being. I'm so, 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 so blessed by her. Um, I think it's not so common that you hear people say they love their mother-in-laws, but she really, she's one of the biggest brachos in my life. Um, so she went and she was with Cyril. She was the first one to to see Cyril. And um, it was so comforting knowing that my baby wasn't alone in the NICU. And when I finally got wheeled down to the NICU, I remember like taking this deep breath in finally, because I finally laid eyes on my child. Um, and she was the biggest and pinkest and healthiest baby there. Um, and that's when that moment of like Baruch Hashem, she's here, she's healthy and she's mine. And, and she's real. And she's real. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a huge disconnect. Um, you hear a lot when people say that they love being pregnant and they feel this like immense maternal connection and they're glowing. Um, I had HG through all three of my pregnancies. So HG it, is hyperemesis gravidarium, like insane nausea insane. and vomiting throughout all three yeah. trimesters. Yeah, a lot of weight loss, um, weekly trips to the hospital for fluids. And on top of that, again, that fear of what if I never get to meet this baby? So you you protect yourself. So as much as I was falling in love with the idea of being a mother and with this child, I never allowed myself to picture what she would look like or to imagine our future because I was so scared. I said to my husband so many times that it's the weirdest thing in the world to be davening to Hashem Especially again, I felt I feel this way in pregnancies following miscarriage. It happens to be that all three of my pregnancies followed miscarriage. Um, but you're davening to Hashem to keep the baby safe and to keep you safe and healthy. But in the same vein, there were I was angry at Hashem. I was angry that he took away what was before. So you feel fake. It's like, how do you dive into someone and say thank you so much? But at the same time, you're also upset with them. Um, and I actually spoke to Rabbi Farkas about this with my pregnancy with Zev. And he said to me, you know, that's what a real relationship is. When you can turn to somebody and say, I need your help, I need your help, and I love you, and I love what you're doing for me, but I'm also upset about something else that you did. And <laughs> and that's what a dynamic relationship is. Um, and I, I think it's so, so, so true. It's, it's very complex to work through the emotions of, of pregnancy after loss. It's amazing. It's amazing how you turned it into such a spiritual journey. And that's not to say that people who don't and who feel disconnect are wrong. No, not at all. I think that pregnancy is extremely personal. Um, and there's a lot of people who try to compare and, and contrast. And there's a lot of judgment. And I always found that to be so funny because how could somebody who's not living in your body with your soul ever have an opinion of what you're experiencing. There's no room for judgment here because it's such a highly personalized and individual experience. Yeah, and it's amazing how you reached within yourself to um, turn it into something spiritual. I honestly felt like I had to. Um, because if I didn't, I don't think that I would have had the koach to keep going or to be able to survive and get through it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not like, in general, I'm not a super duper spiritual person. Um, 
I connect to Judaism through logic and reason. I really love when there's an explanation. Like, I wish I learned more Gemara growing up because that's the coolest thing to me. Um, So it was very interesting that through this experience, I did become super spiritual because I had no other option. I mean, you can look at science and data. And my husband used to say to me, you know, statistically, this pregnancy is going to work out. And I would look at him and say, but statistically, I was a statistic last time. So like, you can't, you can't rely on it, but you can rely on God. The more we know about having a baby, getting to having a baby, the more we see just how little we know. And Absolutely. and this was for you. So it probably just gave you kind of, like it's so much is, is not rational and logical. There's nothing right? about it that's rational or you, logical. You can get statistics, but that doesn't no, mean you're gonna fall It's not gonna make you feel any better. At least not for me, it didn't. Yeah. But knowing that I could put it all into Hashem, definitely. Amazing. Yeah, Baruch Hashem, it made me, I, I wouldn't say it, it took away my problems, it didn't. I was, I held my breath the entire time, but like I acknowledged that no matter what's going to happen, it's not in my hands. Okay, so, how was um, Cyril's journey through the NICU? Was she discharged? She was discharged within 12 hours, yeah. They did a spinal tap just to make sure there was no exposure or meningitis. Um, she was discharged and she was ours. And she is a healthy, thank God, little girl. Um, I can't believe she's already eight years old. When I think back that like I've been in this like Parsha, quote unquote, for a decade already, I don't feel old enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank God she's perfectly healthy. And it was a wild ride um, and something that makes my relationship with her super special and a bond that we'll always have. Um, so yeah, I think thank God for her because she's the one who gave me hope. Once, once I delivered her through all of the miscarriages following, I was like, but I have a living, breathing child. So she is physical proof that that I can do this, my body can do this, and that miracles happen. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And so, you know, once you were raising her, she was kind of growing into a toddler. And, you know, I think it's important for people who have infertility to be validated with the fact that it's very nice that you had your one baby. Mm-hmm. It's so normal to want to give them a sibling. Absolutely. It's actually funny. Um, this is something that I've spoken about with other people who have had infertility. Now, now years later, people are more open to speaking about it. Thank God, especially because of people like you advocating. Um, but I once had a conversation with someone else who had infertility and she said, you know, if someone who has five kids announces another pregnancy, no one says to them, oh, you should be thankful that you have the four. But people with infertility, if they're open about it and they start to say, I really want a second child or a third child or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth, who cares? Very often we're met with, why aren't you thankful? Or just be thankful for the one that you have. It was so difficult to have that one. Just be thankful. And why is that fair? We want to grow our families the same way. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that to someone with any other kind of illness. Like, oh, be thankful you got through it once and don't, you know, don't want to be healthy for the rest of your life. Like, you would never say that. So why would someone say it to someone who wants to have more children? It's like a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, and, and like you said, everyone has a different background. Everyone has their own experiences, perceptions, values. So it's not for us to judge whether, like you said, they want number four, five, six. Also, no one's asking you to carry their baby. So why do you right. like, why why do you have an opinion of it? Right, right. It's very weird. Yeah. Um, I don't get it. Um, but yeah, we definitely we wanted another child. Um, 
in between Cyril being born and actively pursuing fertility treatments again, I did get pregnant a couple of times and lost it each time very early. Um, It's interesting, though, because I don't want to say that those miscarriages hurt less, but I sort of always knew in the back of my mind that I would need fertility treatments and I need hormonal support during pregnancy to help sustain the pregnancy. So since I wasn't actively trying to conceive and I wasn't undergoing fertility treatments, they were the blows were easier to process because mentally I wasn't like fighting for it. Um, Again, not to say that looking back, it's not devastating. It just, for me and my personal life, the caliber was a little bit different because emotionally I wasn't invested. And by the time I realized that I was pregnant, I was already losing the pregnancy. So there was no, again, there's no connection there. So we went back to fertility treatments. So the times that you got pregnant and had the miscarriages, you you weren't intervening. Yeah, no, we weren't, you're right. We weren't trying to achieve pregnancy. We weren't trying to not achieve pregnancy. Right, so I can see how that investment is just a little bit it's less less. it's not there because you're not yeah like I said you're not fighting for something you said oh if it happens great but if it doesn't happen I'm prepared for it and I'm prepared for the fact that I may need fertility treatment for the next one yeah yeah in my mind I knew for sure I was like it just it didn't happen well there weren't good outcomes beforehand so why would it change although for some people it does change I guess I'm just a little bit of a pessimist that you know I'll just assume the worst and if it's better than the worst then amazing and if not then not um, so we did go back to the same doctor who we saw with Sarl. Um, the very first cycle, we used the same like cocktail, I like to say, um, and the same treatments that we did with Sarl. The very first cycle, I got pregnant with Perry. Her pregnancy again, I had HG, but it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a smoother ride. Um, not so many complications other than just being sick. And also I was chasing after a toddler and working full time. Right, being more distracted. Way more distracted. So the pregnancy flew by. Um, at 32 weeks, I started having contractions and went into labor. Went to NYU where I delivered Cyril and Perry. And they said, yeah, you're definitely in active labor. We have to get this under control. Um, and I'll never forget this. They did a 4D scan of my placenta because they wanted to check on it. And at the time... Um, the person who was doing the scan was reading off my chart and saw how many pregnancies I had versus live births. And she said, do you want to meet your daughter? And I said, no, it's too soon. She's like, oh no, I didn't mean like that. I mean, do you want to see her face? Um, And again, through Perry's pregnancy, even though it was a little bit easier, I still was disconnected um, and holding my breath. But once they showed me her face in like a 4D sano, I was like, this is our daughter. There's, There's an immediate connection there because now this is not just something inside of me this is a real person and look at her lips and her eyes and she looks just like her father and um it was a really cool moment thank god after a couple of days in the hospital and iv medication and sent home on medication to prevent contractions um they were able to stop labor i was put on bed rest and i delivered her at exactly 38 weeks also just like sarl she was a v-back though which was an incredible experience oh, yeah. um actually she was going to be a planned c-section because i was so scared of laboring again and then given that you had some cardiac activity that exactly. may have shown that you were not tolerating labor, right exactly right? Um, and I didn't want to labor for 24 hours and end up with another emergency C-section. And as I was walking out of my doctor's office before going to NYU, you know, to be checked out, he said, so you want me to have my team scrub in? You're quitting? And my doctor knows me very well. You have to understand that, like, 
in the world of fertility treatments, you become very close with your team. They know everything about you. They know you, you're most vulnerable. Like he's like a family friend at this point, knows my husband, we all have a relationship. And I looked at him and I was like, what do you mean quitting? I am not a quitter. I'm very stubborn. You have to know I'm very, very stubborn. And you're the type where like he'll say to you, oh, you can't. And you're like, I'll show Show you. you. Well, exactly. When I left the hospital at 33 weeks, because I was there for four days, so 32 into 33 weeks, they said to me, we're going to see you back for sure by 35 weeks. There's no way you're going to go any later. And I was like, just watch it. Mm -hmm. And I took that bed rest so seriously and made it to 38 weeks. They couldn't believe it. Um, So when my doctor said that, I was like, I am not a quitter. And he sat me down. He's like, look, you haven't had the cardiac issues that you had before. Um you've tolerated pregnancy a lot better than you did last time. Like, I really think that you can be back. So I looked at him and I was like, I'll give you 12 hours. After 12 hours, that's it. If she's not here, I'm done. We're calling the C-section. That's a good compromise. Yeah. Because it's always so hard for people, not always, but it's hard oftentimes for people to make the decision about whether they're going to try to labor after a C-section. Exactly what you said. They don't want to have to labor for so long just to end up having another C-section. Because then it's like you're recovering from both. Uh, Yeah. Right. Um, So he said, fine. He's like, deal. So we went over to NYU. My mother-in-law met us there. Uh, My parents both live out of state. And because both my kids were born early, my parents couldn't be there. So my mother-in-law was actually there um, with Sorrel's birth also. She was holding my hand the entire time when my husband couldn't. Like, really special relationship. Uh, My mother-in-law literally had just flown back from Israel. They were there for Pesach. So she came straight from the airport to the hospital. So you were in labor on your own already? Yeah, for probably like five hours something like that yeah so you um, went for an office visit so I'd been having really strong contractions but I didn't want to like spend three hours getting checked out in triage my doctor was like just come into the office we'll do a cervical check he was like yeah you're like five and a half centimeters these contractions are every three minutes let go to the hospital it's time I had had preterm labor so it wasn't just like my first rodeo here um so went to the hospital my mother-in-law met us there again. She held my hand the entire time. So phenomenal. My mother-in-law had four C-sections, so she had never been around mm. for or like been in the same room as a, um, vaginal, a vaginal delivery. delivery. Um, so she was really excited just at the prospect of that. Um, and at 11 and a half hours into my 12 hour. Um, paid. Yeah. Perry was born via VBAC and it was the most incredible experience. They immediately put her on my chest, which is something I dreamed about, you know, forever. And I didn't get that with, with Sorrel because she was brought to the NICU so quickly. Um, so Perry was put on my chest and she let out this loud scream. And again, it's like, you know, they say that like chemo patients ring the bell when they're done with their cancer treatments. Like that moment was like me ringing my bell of like, I beat infertility again. Um, and not just beat infertility again, but you got that dream. Yeah, the dream of actually holding my baby. Emotional. Yeah. Um, it was incredible. I, I've never felt euphoria like that before. It was, I was crying. My husband was crying. My mother in law is like up by my head holding my hand and it's just like a mess crying. Um, Listen, seven years in and I still cry at delivery. It's so, never get old. I know. It's insane. It is so incredible. Um, and then my father brought Sarah to the hospital later in the day and seeing my older daughter hold my younger daughter was like, that was another dream of mine. Like you always see the sibling picture and it's so cute to see siblings holding. But again, with infertility, you worry if you're ever gonna have your first, let alone your second. So when that 
that moment happened. It was very picturesque. I think that some people have this hesitation when they're having their second baby that they're kind of betraying their first child. Like, how am I going to love a second baby as much or I'm going to have to take away my love from my first child to give to my second child? And I think it's really nice to know that you're actually giving your child a gift that no one else can give. Yeah, I think... It definitely your love multiplies. In my case specifically, um, my husband was in his last year of his PhD and had just matched for residency with the Navy. So I was actually going from being a full-time working mom to a full-time stay-at-home mom. Military mom. Military wife and mom, yeah. But it was really cool because with Sarl, I went back to work when I was six weeks postpartum and I worked long and crazy hours. Um, so I really only saw her for like an hour a day. So there was a lot of mom guilt there, whereas... With Perry being born, the start of my maternity leave was the start of me being a full-time mom. Full-time stay-at-home mom, sorry. Everyone is a full-time mom. Um, So I really felt like I was giving her a different gift because I was giving her a baby and I was giving her myself. That there was, I was going to be around a lot more than I ever was before. That's amazing. So many milestones. Yeah, a lot changing at once. (laughs) Your husband finishing a long journey of school and having a second baby and being having the privilege of staying home with both of your babies. That's amazing. So you had two kiddos, and was that when you moved to Waterbury? No, we moved to Baltimore. So my husband went off to officer school for six weeks when Perry was about two months old, I want to say. And in that time, I moved with both of my girls to Baltimore alone. Thank God we had friends there, but I met the movers. I unpacked our whole house. Military wife, military mom life. (laughs) Really thrown into it. Um, My husband did his residency at Walter Reed Medical Center, which is the largest military hospital in the country. In Bethesda, we chose to live in Baltimore because, again, we had friends there, um, bigger Jewish community. And that's really when, like, life started to get really crazy busy. But it was really a huge gift. I really... I loved being able to go to all of my daughter's like school things. Sarah went to preschool in Baltimore. She was used to school. I didn't think it would be fair to like keep her home at three and a half now. So she started school um, and I was able to like volunteer in the classroom and like do all the things that I wasn't able to do when I was working. But I knew when I was working that I was doing it to support my husband through school so that when the light at the end of the tunnel came that, you know, I'd be able to take a little bit of a break from working in order to be there for the kids. So it was really a rewarding experience. That's amazing. And then you had some other things with your reproductive system going on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So we were in Baltimore for a year. Um, After that, we moved to Waterbury, uh, which is where we live now, and really immediately felt like home. Um, I'm so happy you guys live here and then I met you. (laughs) We love living here. Thank God. We've had so many really great friends. Um, but really feel like Hashem puts you exactly where you need to be. So basically, um, I have a long family history of breast and ovarian cancer. My grandmother on my father's side, my great-grandmother, a bunch of my aunts um, have all experienced it. And I sort of, in the back of my mind, was like, you know, things were different then. None of my first cousins have had cancer. I don't really need to worry about this. Um and I put it to the back of my mind. I was I wanted to start a family. Never never really thought about it until the spring summer of 2019, maybe a year, two years after we moved here, a year mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my first cousin, 
called and let me know that she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And it sort of felt like the walls around me were caving in because I was able to get through my life not worrying about cancer because none, no one of my generation had had it. And now all of a sudden my cousin, who's like four or five years older than me, something like that, um, was really sick. So I went to my general practitioner and I said, I need to have testing done for BRCA mutation. I was just like, I need to have it done. There's no putting it off anymore. Um, was there any known BRCA mutation in your family? Had no. anyone else got tested? So no, not at this point. I just knew that I wanted specifically that because so many incidences of cancer in the same family, that's not a fluke. There's there's something genetic going on. And outside of BRCA, there's a whole slew of um, cancer genetic testing panels that can be done. So I knew that I wanted a whole workup. My doctor sent me to... Um, a oncologist who had a genetic counselor on her team. We did the testing. Before you even get your results, they walk you through everything so that you're not just learning about your options once you have results and then making this crazy decision. I, I cannot imagine how hard that must have been just knowing that you will know one way or another because that's really hard. I think it's just easier sometimes not to know and just Absolutely. Hope. That's a lot of people. They always say you put your head in the sand. You don't want to know. Especially when you're healthy. Yeah. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. And so you said that the oncologist had a genetic cancer that really cancels you even before testing yes. to tell you what would be done with the information that you would be tested for, which I always say is really important for people to ask, like what's going to change mm -hmm. if you got positive results for exactly. something. Right, so I we probably, I probably spent two hours with her at that appointment. Um, she explained to me all the different panels that they were doing, if um, malignancies were detected, what does that mean, what are your options? So when you say malignancies, you mean cancer itself? No, any sort of genetic defect that would lead to a malignancy. Mm -hmm. um, so, I would say that the wait time for results was probably somewhere around four weeks, which was devastating. It's so long. Um, and I'll never forget the day I got my results because it was Erev Yom Kippur. Um, so Baruch Hashem, because it was Erev Yom Kippur, my husband was home from work, which is like in the military, it's like a big deal to not be at work, especially as a provider. Um, do they, do you get them in person or do they call you? You have, I had to go in person. I think, do you think that that was better? Um, it was better because I, you're sitting in the office with someone. You have the face-to-face -face support. Yeah, with a person who, again, the genetic counselor. Um, so they kind of probably serve a, a little bit of an emotional, emotional support. Oh, absolutely. Role. Yeah, absolutely. So they called me the morning of to confirm that I was coming in. And I turned to my husband and I was like, it's positive. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, they wouldn't call to make sure I'm coming in unless it's positive. And you have to know that I said before I'm a pessimist. When it came to being positive for any sort of mutation, I did not believe that I would be. Because it's something that is so much larger than life to imagine that even the best of the pessimists, you, you don't actually, you can't fathom it. I think it's just the mind protecting yourself. Absolutely. I, I believe it's an evolutionary Absolutely. thing where if you would think any other way, you just wouldn't be able to function. No, not at all, especially for four weeks. Like, that's a long time. Um, so we went to my appointment. We sat down, and she opened the folder, and she said, you tested positive for a BRCA2 gene mutation. 
and I immediately started crying and I it then it hit me like oh my gosh this not only is it possible it's true um this is my life and I'd been counseled on what's going you know what my options were so I you know all of these things are crashing through my mind about the possibilities, the possibilities of what would happen if you didn't do anything, what you would have to do. Absolutely, thinking that I have two little kids at home and I can't get to, And my cousin has two daughters that are around the same age as mine. And, and knowing your cousin's diagnosis and what she's going through oh must have gosh. been even scarier. It was terrifying. And, and also there's guilt there because if it wasn't for her like being diagnosed I wouldn't have gone and gotten tested and this just shows how the character of my cousin she calls me her silver lining that because of her bad situation I got tested and can protect myself so that's the silver lining to her situation which is so incredible because I just feel terrible that she had to go through it and that now because of measures that I've taken I don't um kind of made uh, meaning out of her yeah test. yeah absolutely so I tested positive um and I knew right away that I wanted to go the surgical route there's there's several options one of them is monitoring where you go in twice a year for MRIs and if something is detected then you act there's another one that's the chemo pill that basically suppresses tumors um but it can mess with your hormones and being let me do the math I think it was 29 at the time yeah, 20. No, it was 28. It was the summer of 2018. I had surgery in the summer of 2019. So I was 28. I didn't want to mess with hormones. And also, I wanted to be able to have kids again in the future. And, you know, all these different things can really play a role in your um, in your system. So I knew that I never wanted to worry. Again, being a military family, we move. And I never wanted to... I mean, I didn't want to continue life with each move being like, is this the place that I'm going to be diagnosed with cancer? And statistically, I would be diagnosed with cancer. And they do a very advanced workup on what your risk is. Um, and mine was greater than 90% because oh of um, because of just all of my family history. You know, there's a baseline, I think for BRCA2, it starts, I don't remember exactly where it starts. The average is maybe 85%. And then like just to, to different So they person, calculate all the information and like a, on your individual, Yeah, on your individualized risk. Um, oh my gosh. So, and, and like you said, you just wanted the continuity of care with one team, right? Yes. So I I had liked the original doctor that I saw, but with I chose to go with um, a double mastectomy and deep flap reconstruction. So you chose to go the surgical route and is the surgical option the most effective yes. at preventing cancer yes um following it a surgery that is done correctly you have less than a two percent risk of developing cancer which is lower than the average national risk so it's the most invasive it's the most invasive by far but the most effective yes so the double mastectomy in general is that's the risk reducing what you choose to reconstruct whether it's breast implants um or what i did which is basically harvesting tissue from my own body um the harvesting tissue is way more invasive than breast implants um but again being being so young i didn't want to have implants i didn't want to have to keep going through that right they have what a 20 year lifespan less i think depending on what the implant is it can be anywhere from 10 to 12 years um if you're doing it properly and at that time there was also a massive recall on breast implants and um I, i just didn't want i didn't want and, and is there greater risk for like infection and everything? With like my that? surgery, yes. Um, but I mean, with breast implants uh, versus harvesting your own tissue. So that part I don't know. I didn't do it in like in extensive research, research on the breast yeah. implant. You just side had that because I knew feeling. that I didn't want to do it. Um, 
So basically the plastic surgeon that was working with the oncologist that I originally saw, the breast surgeon, I just did not like him. He tried pushing me into doing silicone implants. Um, you know, when you know, you know, I just did not get a good feel for him. He he really was a boutique plastic surgeon um, as opposed to a oncological, oncological plastic surgeon. Um, and you could tell the difference. So I, I went back to my general practitioner and I said, I want a second opinion. Um, and she sent me to a different breast surgeon named Dr. Nina Horowitz at Smilo, which is Yale's Cancer Hospital. And from the second I walked in, it was and again, I liked the first breast surgeon. Um, I just didn't like her plastic surgeon. But it was a totally different feel. She gave me this huge hug, um, pre-corona days, obviously. And she said, you know, we're a team. And you're on the team. And I'm on the team. And my nurses are on the team. And your husband is on the team. And we're only as strong as our team is. And just feeling like I wasn't just another person that she was going to literally amputate body parts from. Because that's what a double mastectomy is. Um, I just felt like okay, I'm in the exact right place that I need to be. And then I met with her plastic surgeon and his name is Dr. Tomer Avraham. And it was night and day. He So he works full-time at Smilo. So all he works on is cancer patients. And his empathy um, was palpable. And his... So it's not just some like woman that wants to make her breasts bigger and like the first surgeon was kind of just doing that, not necessarily people who are sick and or people who are at risk of becoming very sick and going through so much emotional Yeah, he was just like, he puts implants in people all day long just to make their breasts bigger. Totally different. Um, He's a cosmetic surgeon, whereas Dr. Avram day in and day out is dealing with sick people and people that are... So you changed your whole oncological team. Yes. So you switched oncologists and, um, and surgeons. as a result, uh, plastic surgeon. Right. And they worked alongside each other. Yes. So Dr. Harwitz and Dr. Avram were both part of Smilo. So they were in the Yale. They, they literally operate with each other on a regular basis. So knowing that they had this really good camaraderie also, um, and they both happened to be Jewish too, which not... It just like led to a little bit of sensitivity. Like Dr. Avram, when I first met with him, um, obviously from looking at me, could tell that I was orthodox. And he said to me, you know, my my fellow is female. Would you be more comfortable if she did the pictures um, and she did the markups? And I said, I was like, is she as good as you? And she, he said, yeah, of course she is. So I said, then yeah, I would. Just having that sensitivity. Your culture was understood. Absolutely. And, and we know that throughout medical care in general, that people who have, let's say, for example, the black maternal mortality rate is so high. Crazy high. And black women feel much more comfortable. And I do believe also have better outcomes when they have a black provider. Right. So I think that it's just nice that you had that extra connection. You shared a similar culture. Right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that he also understood how important family was to me and, and having more children and having more children and from them basically I also got referred to another Jewish surgeon um, named Dr. Ratner and she's the head of gynecology oncology at Smilo so another Yale doctor because BRCA2 mutation is also related to ovarian um, cancer so, so yeah. you had three people on your team you yes. had an oncologist you had a plastic surgeon and you had a gynecological oncologist, oncologist. which is actually um, like an advanced 
uh, training from an OBGYN, yes. they can go into that kind of fellowship, that specialized mm-hmm. training. Okay, wow. So three people on your team. And I think it's so important to emphasize that when you use doctors that work together, it can so vastly improve the outcomes and your whole experience. Oh my gosh, absolutely. They, when you say a doctor's name and they say, I operate with them regularly and they're down the hall and um, my residents know their residents, you feel so much more comfortable because it's one large blanket like wrapping around you I like to say Um, we call it interdisciplinary collaborative care where they're really collaborating they have that relationship they're in touch with each other regularly they have kind of the same language they speak absolutely Um, so before you get scheduled surgeries or anything like that you have to have complete workups done from all sides of care so even though um, I was years away from having any sort of gynecological surgery you still have to go to them and get checked out make sure that you're not already sick meaning at this point I was 28 and I knew right. that my first gynecological surgery didn't need to be until like my mid-30s okay got so it. literally mm-hmm. year, yeah years away but Again, you could be diagnosed earlier. So I had to start preventative care, which is screening. Um, and a lot of times they say even for ovarian cancer, by the time it's screened, it's it's too late. It's like a silent killer. It's really scary. Um, so I'd met this with that doctor also. And after speaking to the oncologist and the plastic surgeon, I just said, this is what I want to do. They both said I'm a great candidate for that type of reconstruction and it's immediate reconstruction. So instead of waking up without breasts, you wake up and you're you have breasts. You're reconstructed you already. Yeah. So does the, did the oncologist operate as well? Or was yes. it just... Okay, so... So you, the oncologist removed the breast. Um, they have to remove as much healthy breast tissue as possible. And again, this is all prophylactic. I was not sick in any way. It's to prevent getting sick. So with a BRCA mutation, there's basically... Um, there's something that doesn't work on one of the genes, and I really should know this off the top of my head, but I don't. Um, but basically, the tumor suppressors don't work. So your body can spontaneously start growing really aggressive tumors, and those turn into breast cancer um, or other types of cancer that are linked to this BRCA gene. Was your oncologist a breast specialist? Yes. Like a, a mm-hmm. breast cancer oncology yes. specialist? Yes, yes, yes. Um, this is That's what she does all day, every day. So basically, the bre- that's the first part of the surgery. The, the breast oncologist goes in, she removes all of the breast tissue as much as possible, um, and then the plastic surgeon comes in and reconstructs. So as I mentioned, um, I used my own tissue. So I harvested it from my abdominal area. So I had a 20 inch long incision across my abdomen, which makes a C-section feel like a walk in the park. Yeah. Um, and they basically take all the healthy tissue with the veins. Um, it's extremely a vascular surgery. They hook it back up to an artery in your chest. So part of it means having like part of your rib shaved off, which is really oh interesting. God. But they have to, you know, tissue can only live if it's alive. Um, so it's microsurgery and, and taking out those veins and reconnecting all of them. It's about a 12 hour surgery start to finish. Um, but the difference is that you never have to have it redone. It's your tissue. And within the first 24 hours, it, it, your body's either going to reject or it's going to be good forever. Um, so I'd the, imagine that the rejection rate is lower than, let's say, a, yeah, a with implants. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And also, that was the other thing. With implants, your body can reject it at any point. It could be two years down the road. And then your body's mm. like, hey, there's this foreign substance. What is that? Um, so I liked knowing that... 
I would know within 24 hours. And in the rare case that your body does reject it, they basically just bring you right back to the OR and then they'll put in silicone implants or expanders really. Those expanders basically are like little balloons, let's say, that they slowly fill up over time because your your skin needs to like stretch a little bit. Yeah. So I had the surgery. 12 hour long surgery, I remember. Your husband visited my husband at Yale, yes. Yeah, yeah. I just can't imagine waiting 12 hours. I mean, not to take away what you were going through. I was asleep, but I I mean, it went by the blink of an eye for me. Yeah, yeah, my husband said that after the breast tissue was removed, the breast oncologist, the breast surgeon, Dr. Horowitz came out and saw my husband and said it went really well. That's really the shorter part of it. Um, and then the reconstruction is what takes the bulk of the time. So they have to be so precise. Yeah, and you really want it to go nicely. Yeah, absolutely. It's there's a lot of incisions, a lot, a lot's going on, um, a lot of surgical sites too, because you're harvesting that tissue. Um, so the first 24 hours following surgery, they monitor you so closely. Every single hour on the hour, they come in and do an ultrasound to make sure that blood is still flowing and that everything vascular is right. I want to say that I was there for probably four to five days in recovery on a cancer surgical floor. I know that floor actually because I used to work at Yale in the labor and delivery unit and we would send um, patients like with a loss or who weren't going to take a baby home for one reason or another. We would send them to recover there. Yeah, yeah. Um, It was another one of those moments sort of like when I mentioned at the NICU with Sarl feeling so fortunate to be have the healthiest baby in the NICU. So... I definitely got a glimpse into, I'm so glad that I did this surgery because all of the people around me were very, very, very sick people. Very, very sick. Those who have experienced precisely what you were doing to prevent. Exactly, yeah. These were these were all people who were fighting cancer. And one of the things that stood out to me the most was anytime one of their loved ones would leave their room, they lingered at the door a little bit. And I saw this over and over and over again in every room almost to the point of like the loved one being like, is this the last time that I'm going to see them? Um, And that just like really hit home. I made the right choice. I don't want my kids to ever, ever, ever have to stand at the doorway thinking, is this the last time we're going to see our mother? Um, So it really solidified what I knew in my heart, but like rationally also it solidified that I made the right choice and that all of the pain I was experiencing and it was very painful. Um, And and I think that from a religious perspective, um, I'm sure that it added to your conflict because in Judaism, our precept is that you are, you cannot harm your body. Right. And surgery obviously is something that is invasive. You're putting a knife to your body and it's, it's, I think that I would imagine you got judgment from people like, why are you doing this huge surgery Mm -hmm. without actually being sick and needing it? Right. So actually at the time of my surgery, I was very, um, I was very secretive about it. Only a handful of people knew, and it was because I was so scared of being judged for having this BRCA mutation, for choosing the most invasive surgery, um, people not fully understanding what the risks were. And it's actually really alarming that in the Ashkenazi world, one in 40 people have a BRCA mutation, and the national average is one in 500. Um, so when you go to show every week or you go to any sort of event, you're in a room with people who have this mutation and they just don't know it because either they don't know to test or they don't want to test. And I'm not judging anyone who chooses not to test. All I'm saying is that in our community, this is rampant. So it shouldn't be a subject that's tab- that's taboo, especially when there are options to prevent it. And you don't have to have the most invasive options. 
option like I did. I That's right. just what I chose for there my life. There are other options. Yeah, right. there are tons of other options. Um, You're so brave, really. You did a very hard thing to know. I felt like it, after, I don't know if it's for sure just going through infertility. So I'm speaking again only from my person, my personal experience. But after fighting so hard to create a family, how could I not take every step to protect myself so that I could be there to watch my daughters grow up and to be the mother that I always dreamed about being you know it it, it wouldn't make sense not to do that so I did (laughs) and I started to recover at home and everything was great Um, I had a minor setback about two weeks after surgery where my abdominal incision got infected. Minor setback. Minor. Just minor. Um, I ended up actually with sepsis, so it was not so minor. I was rushed. And sepsis is, for those who don't know, a systemic bacterial infection that is very dangerous, that escalates very quickly. And if there's not timely treatment, then it can, God forbid, really take away someone's life. Yeah, I I was actually told that, um, that 12 hours would have made the difference between life or death with me. So... Um, again, being the stubborn person that I am, you know, I was I was in a lot of pain and I had sort of expressed that and I was like, but you know, I just had surgery. I was told it's going to be painful. But when I realized that I was in more pain than I was in the day before and that my recovery had taken a step back, that's when I realized that something wasn't right. Um, and went back to Yale. They said, yeah, absolutely. This is infected. It started on a like really large dose of antibiotics while they were waiting for the cultures to come back. Um, I remember I sent my husband home to put my kids to sleep. My mother had come to stay with us for a month for my recovery, but my girls were really worried that I was rushed back to the hospital. So I said, Mati, go home, put them to sleep. So at least they feel like, you know, they love my mother, but like if they see my husband, they're going to feel like some more normalcy. Um, while he left, I was admitted, brought upstairs. I started getting the antibiotics. I fell asleep. I woke up at like maybe like one in the morning to all of the alarms going off in my room. Um, my husband was back and I remember just looking at him saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he like all the color had drained out of his face and my vitals crashed basically. Um, and a nurse came running in and called a crash cart. And I guess he has what's called SWAT nurses. They, yeah. they respond really yeah. quickly. Yeah, so every, not every hospital, but many have like, you know, a rapid response team or they call it a SWAT team at Yale. And it, it can have different names in different hospitals. But yeah, we're just, there's a team. Um, and in larger hospitals, they're actually dedicated toward doing this. Like this is all they do. They yeah. don't necessarily have a, a specific unit assignment. No, they, they, they just go, go from place to place. All around, yeah. yeah. They have that special card. They swipe on the elevator where, you know, overrides anyone else and it takes them straight to where they need to go um so the nurse called the SWAT team the nurse called the SWAT team um and she was speaking to me but it was sort of like an out-of-body experience so like really speaking to my husband also saying you know your wife's vitals have crashed we really need to stabilize her um and in all of this the chief resident from the surgical team came running and also thank god he was on call um, and he looked at the labs, and I remember so clearly he's, him saying she's septic. And I've watched enough Grey's Anatomy and ER to know that sepsis does not end well. Um, and I remember just looking at my husband and being so scared. Like, I, I had this surgery to protect myself, and now because of this surgery, I'm in a possibly life-threatening situation. Um, 
Baruch Hashem, everyone responded as quickly as they did. We did not need the crash cart. Um, they were able to get my vitals back and stable, um, but it did require a bedside surgery. So no anesthesia at all, no OR, literally being cut open um, wide awake. To drain all of the bacteria yeah, from your to wounds. drain the localized infection that was feeding the sepsis into my blood system. Um, so that was an experience. And I remember with like each step of this, I'm like, I'm a very like low drama person. I don't like drama. I like want vanilla, vanilla all day long. And I was just like, really? Like every time like something like this happens, I'm like, why, why? Like, why do I have to hit every single speed bump? Um, I ended up having an open wound that needed to be packed for like several months um, until the tissue regenerated. But Baruch Hashem, I recovered fully. I did not go into septic shock. Um, and life totally went on as normal, thank God. How, how first of all, I I would imagine the pain was really hard, really strong. And Crazy. How long did it take you to, like like you said, fully recover? Um, so first of all, when they when they cut into me, I would say I bla- like within the first few seconds I blacked out. Your body really protects you. You can only handle a certain amount of pain. So I passed out, and when I woke up, they were already like finished and and cleaning up. It took I would say total, meaning between both surgeries, a couple of months to like really feel totally 100% better. The breast part of the surgery healed a lot faster. It was really uh, my abdominal incision because again, 20 inches hip to hip, you're not talking about just cutting open like a C-section, they just cut you open and take out the baby. They removed the tissue. So it's taking a chunk of tissue out and then sewing you back up. But um, it took it took several months. Um, and every now and then I'll have like random pain, but like nothing like in the beginning. For the most part, I don't realize that. You know, I remember I saw you the summer after I met you one, one day, the summer after you, um, uh, you know, had your surgery. And I remember you telling me you would have these like shooting pains. Yes. So a lot of times you lose all feeling in surgical sites because of nerve damage. But when you're lucky and Baruch Hashem, I have been lucky that some of my feeling has started to come back. So when the nerve endings turn back on, it's like being electrocuted. Mm. Um, and you'll get like really, at least I got really super sharp pains that like would stop me from what, like in the middle of whatever I was doing. Um, those have pretty much calmed down. Now, like if my kids like hug me in the wrong way or come running at me, like if there's some sort of impact that hurts, I'm still tender. Um, but in general, like... I'm still very numb. I would say I have like maybe 20% feeling back in my abdomen and breast, um, 80% numbness. Even in your breast? Yeah. My, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they don't fully expect um, ever to have 100% feeling again. I, I would think we may not expect any. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely, you have to... It's, again, it's one of those things that you can't comprehend until you're going through it. Um, I have to say, though, that Baruch Hashem, even with my run with sepsis and the infection, that it's it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, and I know that that's, just, again, it's my personal experience. I happen to have a very high pain tolerance. Um, but I was relieved that I wasn't like an invalid for months and months and months on end. The yeah. first four weeks. You don't let anything stop you anyway. I try not to. <laughs> the first four weeks I needed help doing basic things. Um, and then after that slowly, you know, you regain your strength and do a little bit of PT in the chest and whatever. And and now, like I said, on a day-to-day basis, life is normal as far as that goes. 
Did you have, I, I feel like you had more than one surgery. Um, I did. I had a revision a year later. And what so is the revision? A revision is completely cosmetic. Um, it's to make things more symmetrical. Um, because I had to be cut open for the sepsis, my incision was kind of ugly. Um, so it was to fix that, make it like less thick, basically, um, and lower down. And then also, again, because they're removing tissue, it, it like makes your body a weird shape. They call them dog ears, but really they just look like really large love handles because you've removed all of the tissue from the front of your stomach, but not the sides. Mm. So they basically cut those <laughs> off and sew it down. Um and then also I had some necrotic tissue in my breast that was removed. Necrotic tissue is just like dead. you said, tissue that's dead, dead, that has no vascular supply, no blood supply. Yeah, and that was actually really painful. I had a, I had a large piece that was sitting over a nerve. So anytime like the, you know, necrotic tissue is super hard. Mm-hmm. So anytime it would rub on the nerve, that was really mm-hmm. painful. So they tried to remove as much I, as possible. I would imagine that can cause infection too. So I don't know. Baruch Hashem, I did not Obviously have any infection there. Right? Yeah, and they were expecting it and monitoring. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you're you're monitored super closely. I, I feel like I know Yale like the back of my hand at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, every time I walk in, I'm the lucky one. I was never sick. Um, and you have that Is reminder. That survivor's guilt. I wouldn't. It's hard when I would sit in waiting rooms. Um, there were times I felt guilty, but then there were also times that like. It was a weird feeling because especially in the breast center, all of the women around me or most of them are sick and you can tell who's sick and who's not sick in a cancer hospital. And they would look at me with sympathetic eyes and I wanted to be like, I'm not sick. But then at the same time, I'm like, no, I don't want to scream that because we're all in this together, aren't we? Um, So I don't know it's necessarily survivor's guilt, but there's definitely something. There's a sensitivity there that... um, I would maybe Hakar Satov that I gratitude. I had yeah immense gratitude that I had the resources that I do and I had the proximity to a, an incredible cancer hospital like I did and access to the surgeons that I did so that I could protect myself um, and now breast cancer is not something that I have to worry about at all. Wow. So we're gonna end off here and I want to do part two. Um, I want to talk about your journey to have your third beautiful baby. So stay tuned, everyone, for next week's episode. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Yolwetit Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience.